Welcome to What's Next, the podcast where we talk to the world's leaders in hospitality. I'm your host, Tarek Mallett, founder and CEO of Moby. In this episode, we talk to Luke Bayless, founder of Sumo Salad and owner of Thrive. We talk about everything from how to recognize opportunities for growth in new products, how Luke inspires his whole team to innovate, how going into voluntary administration allowed Luke to take back the reins of his business and the group's new brand Thrive, which has grown incredibly fast and is already outperforming Sumo Salad in revenue and profitability. There's so many incredible insights in this conversation with Luke, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So Luke, with these discussions with founders, I always like to begin with the origin story of the business, the path you're on immediately prior to forming, founding Sumo Salad and how the business came to be. You founded Sumo Salad back in 2003. Could you start there by giving us your origin story, what the market was like at the time and what led you to believe that it was ready for a salad brand? Yeah, so I was living in America with my now wife and during the time I was living there, I, I put on about 50 kilograms. I was living in Chicago, which is uh, unfortunately for me, the home of the deep dish pizza. We definitely had quite a few of those deep dish pizzas over the years that we were there. When I came back to Australia, what, what we noticed is that there's a very early stage wellness trend starting to emerge. And it wasn't really ingrained or embedded into the culture, but you could see that there were the early adopters really starting to look for these healthier alternatives. I guess it's pretty common knowledge that when you go to America, it's a great place to find find ideas and find concepts and you can usually add 10 to 15 years on sort of figure out where Australia is situated you know behind that sort of trend and that, that's probably uh, reduced recently but certainly back in the you know 20 years ago that was that was the case so when we came back to Australia after having all the weight we decided we were looking at a range of different businesses. One was similar to like a WeWork style concept where we had a conferencing center. We we're looking at a, a furniture rental business for all the people that were looking to auction their homes and needed to sort of tart up their house and make it really sort of auction ready and optimize the values. And then we were looking at healthy fast food. And when we did the sort of the economics and looked at the scalability of the different options, we thought that the sumo business was something that, that had a lot of potential, was a very untapped opportunity in Australia, but also really suited what we needed in terms of our lifestyle and, and gave us the ability to sort of, you know make a bit of a sea change as well as indulge in a business that would excite us. So I guess in 2003, after, after doing that, we tried to be the, I guess, the antithesis of McDonald's and KFC and tried to to piggyback off wherever there was a food court that only offered terrible foods, unhealthy foods. We would try to go into that trade environment, locate ourselves, and just try to appeal to that customer demographic that was seeking a healthier alternative. I guess off the back of that, yeah, Sumo was born and you know we, we, we wanted to change the perception of health and democratise healthy foods. And that was a big part of why we started the business. Health was very much, you know, mung beans and 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 lettuce and things that people just went, oh, that's bland and I'm, I'm not interested. So to try to create a brand around health and try to create some some excitement and indulgence around health was, a, you know, something that was carefully considered in terms of setting up the brand. So we chose the name Sumo Salad because we thought we could have a lot of fun with it and use that juxtaposition between Sumo and big value, big salads, big flavors, and then try to incorporate that into a meal that changed the perception of healthy being a wispy little side salad. And it was a proper significant meal that you could, that was indulgent and you could enjoy. And I guess off the back of that, well, you know, 18 years later, we've had amazing growth. We've had amazing times and we've had terrible times. We've been through every different business cycle you can possibly think of. And yeah, it's great to sort of see how the business has 
constantly evolved and shift and had to sort of recalibrate where it sits given the change in our trade environments and consumer preferences. I'm looking forward to digging into sort of some of those challenges and successes as we continue to chat. But I imagine those first few stores, getting those going was was a pretty exciting time. At what point in the journey did you feel like you'd made it? I don't think we've ever felt like we've made it. Even though we're optimistic people, we always feel like we've got more to do. I think the day when I feel like I've made it is the day I'll probably sell the business and exit because that's probably where I'll tap out and go, there's not much more I can add in terms of the value that we bring. We've had some incredibly exciting times where we hit that 100 store milestone and we were just knocking on the door of hitting 100 million turnover. And that was a really big milestone that we set when we started the business. But then as soon as we got to that point, there was a quite a big sort of macro shift in our trade environment and we didn't keep going on that growth trajectory in the core business of franchising. We definitely achieved some big goals that we'd set out to when starting the business, but, but never quite felt like we were there. Touching on those those hundred stores, you grew extraordinarily fast as Sumo Salad. You know, you even opened stores internationally in the likes of Dubai and Singapore. Mm. And then it felt like there was a point where competitors latched on to the healthy eating and salad bar concept, and there began a time of what I think you refer to as, as market saturation. What was the impact of competition? How did this make you stronger as a brand? And how did it shape that strategy going forward? It's an interesting dynamic because as a business operator, when you're the first to market, you lay out your cards, you lay out your strategy and you put your infrastructure in places where what you know at the time and what we knew at the time was that there was Macca's KFC and there was a requirement for a healthier alternative and we could be populated within a food court and still appeal to that type of consumer. What changed with competitors is the introduction of more kiosks, the lack of governance over usage, people's usage and direct competitors offering lookalike suite of options for the customer, but also all the other like Maccas and KFC and all of the different brands starting to encroach into wellbeing and have side salads and different things, wraps. And so everything was sort of chipping away at that customer that we had sort of really sort of focused in on. And so it was a bit of death by a thousand cuts. The straw that broke the camel's back for us was when I guess our biggest competitor was getting put directly in front of us and you had to walk past the customer, go 20 meters past the customer to get to our store. That became too big a problem for us to overcome within the infrastructure that we laid out. So we had to rethink. I guess it felt like almost we were swimming against the tide and we're swimming like buggery just to, just to stay afloat and just to sort of stop the erosion of the business. But we were never really getting ahead because the market was constantly changing. And it's almost similar to what happened with Uber drivers and taxi drivers, you know, that just that when they're such a big market shift you can try your best to be a good taxi operator and but the market has shifted so you just got to I think at some point come to the realization that you need to change your strategy and that's in that's ultimately what we ended up doing after sort of kept banging our heads against a brick wall for three years trying to break through a, a situation that we we're never going to win in. Because I imagine that sort of leads into the challenges, you know, in 2018 which you know was was a pretty tough year for Sumo Salad. Can you sort of talk a little bit more about what happened there and how, how you got to that point? Yeah, absolutely. We, like, when you start a business, you, you have a, a financial model. You get, you go, I make X turnover, I have X cost of goods, I have X labor, X rent. And over time, what happens is if your revenues, if your fixed costs are escalating and your revenues are dropping because of a change in your environment, you get to a point where, there's just not, there's not the margin in it to sustain the business. 
And unless you can recalibrate your costs to, to, to the new environment, you need to restructure. You need to make significant structural changes to your business to get out of that situation and to get into an environment that is suitable for you and, and that works. So in 2018, we probably had about $80 million of lease liability in our trading entity. And because the, 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 the lack of governance of usage and competitors coming in and the sort of environment changing without any us having any control, we had to go to our what we thought were our partners, our landlords, and ask them to, to, to reconsider the uh, cost of operation. Obviously, we were met with major resistance off the back of that. We weren't in a sustainable position, and we had to and we had to disclaim the leases in order for us to survive. And unfortunately, that was the only way we could get out of it because we couldn't sit down as partners in an honest, open environment and work through a resolution. I guess there was two loaded guns sitting in a room, and and either we had to get an outcome or we had to pull the trigger on getting out of these leases and getting out of getting into an environment that was sustainable for us. And that's ultimately what. 2018 was about for us. It was about disclaiming leases and getting out of an environment that was uh, not conducive to our sort of future direction and then just reassessing the, the complete new strategy of the business. And I've heard you you say previously that voluntary administration isn't a failure and lots of businesses will need to restructure at some point. Can you tell me what you mean by this? And you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about restructuring is always difficult at the best of times. You know, it really feels like sumo salads come out of that period even stronger than before um, and how, how that experience really shaped the future strategy. The reason for a voluntary administration or a restructure, it's for exactly that situation where your old business doesn't meet the direction that your future business needs to go and you've got these legacy issues that prohibit you from sort of getting from A to B. And what it does is it enables you to sort of carve out parts of your business that weren't working, carve out obligations that you were in that didn't enable you to, to get to your future state and just focus in on, a, on your unique core proposition and then remove all the parts that are sort of dragging you down and not enabling you to, to, you know, to then evolve. That's why we didn't see the voluntary administration as a failure because we still had amazing sales through that period. We still had great brand following. We we're still delivering an amazing customer experience. What we weren't doing is spending all of our time and energy fighting with landlords and people like that, which was just dragging our, our focus away from the customer. And we were able to sort of, you know, absolve all that noise and tension and focusing on what was best for the customer and what was best for the evolution of the brand. So from that perspective, we didn't see it as a failure and we got a lot of key learnings. And without that process, we, w- we wouldn't be alive today. And one of the great powers of uh, the voluntary administration is that you can disclaim any binding contract that doesn't enable you to, to sort of move forward in a viable fashion within the business. And that was such a key component of the voluntary administration that enabled us to survive. Internally, I know in the hospitality industry, there were, there's always been challenges with leases and you know, some of the lock-ins that come with that. It generally felt like Sumo Salad was almost taking this on on behalf of the hospitality industry. We've had an extraordinary 18 months with, with COVID, which has, you know, again, really affected probably no one harder than the hospitality industry. How do you see this from a, you know, a lease perspective coming back around full circle? And do you think we're going to see an increase in voluntary 
country administrations over the next 18 months? It's hard to say, but rents were so heavily ratcheted up two years ago that a lot of the operators in food didn't have huge balance sheets to be able to sit there for two years and pay 50% rent to a landlord when they're delivering zero turnover and not meeting their sort of cost of operation. I'm a bit distanced from it now, but looking at the state of the industry two years ago and the, the, how toppy the rents were and how much pressure a lot of the small operators were under and then playing that forward to having much more financial strain and being in, not, not only having lost their capital reserves, but also being in debt you know, because a lot of the rent has just gone into, a, you know, I guess a deferral and also the tenure of their lease being shrunk with the inability to sort of stretch it out over a longer period of time to get to a better position. I think it's going to be incredibly challenging unless there is a major structural change then uh, and landlords can sort of put empathise with the retailers and put it and put themselves on the other foot. I can see that a lot of people will be, you know, really struggling to, to keep solvent and, you know, I just hope that that isn't the case and that it, there is a partnership-centric approach and everyone can sit down and look at the new reality of what everyone's in you know, and work through it in a logical and fair manner. That, that's ultimately, that should be the way it's done. It shouldn't have to go through a voluntary administration process, but it's going to take both parties working together to enable that. And do you think that desire to work together has you know, certainly changed since 2018 and, and landlords are, are more open to a partnership-style approach? Um, I, don't, I don't know, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm a little bit out of it that now. I think because we were sort of the canary in the coal mine, a lot of our relationships were landlo- with landlords are very fractured um, because we had to force an outcome. So we haven't seen that positive partnership or you know orientated approach firsthand but I guess the landlords will probably look at who they want to keep and who they don't and they'll probably have a different approach for different people. Speaking of COVID you know obviously affected the industry heavily how how's it affected Sumo Salad and and how have you and the team navigated this this changing landscape we find ourselves in? Well we're, we're down to sort of 17 stores now and they're high volume high brand experience stores and over 18 years my ambition of conquering the world has changed you know now I look at it much more pragmatically and, and with a much greater level of realism and for us now, I guess Sumo Salad decided that in order to achieve our purpose of democratising healthy food and, and providing accessibility to, to, to healthy, nutritious food in an affordable way, we don't need to be in a food court to do that. So we've done a lot of partnerships with supermarkets, we've done a lot of concessions, and we've also done an acquisition of a, of a direct-to-consumer brand and done a lot of stuff online to still provide a huge volume of, of meals and transactions and still meet our, our, our purpose, but doing it in a way that was viable to us and made it so that we could sort of scale in a much different and a much healthier way. I'm keen to touch on that that innovation and sort of changing business model shortly because I think it's sort of inherent in the in the culture that you've developed within the team. Just just sort of wrapping on COVID, people seem to think that once we hit these vaccination targets, everything will go back to normal and life will be back to the way that it was. Do you share the same enthusiasm and sort of how do you see the next 18 months playing out? Uh, I'm, a, I'm an optimist, but... I'm also probably a little bit of a, in the last few years, I've become a bit more realistic with everything. And, you know, as much as I'd like to see everything go back to normal and everyone just sort of, 
I think that the changes that have occurred over the last couple of years are so monumental that I think there'll always be an embedded shift. And so, for instance, a lot of people that I know that, that, that work in the city, for example, they're now permanently working from home two days a week. So anyone who's, who's got a business relying on that traffic in the city, you know, that's something that needs to be, that's a, that's a shift that now changes that whole trading environment so I think there'll be some changes that, that stick due to COVID and that there'll need to and that people will either be winners or losers from those those changes. If we look at other countries like Israel or people that still have huge uh, vaccination rates, they're still going into snap lockdowns and there's still this constant disruption depending on on the cycle of and the the severity of the disruption. I think it's still going to be up and down and back and forth and it's not just going to be everyone just powering out of this and putting that in the past. Uh, and there's just going to be a lot of adjustments to people coming into the country, the availability of a, of a workforce that can you know, do a lot of the jobs that, that we've been so reliant on. It just, it just impacts in so many different ways, not just in terms of your revenue, but your cost base and your ability to get talent and every aspect needs to be now rethought. So, so yeah, I think I don't think you can look at the way things were two years ago and expect it to be the same now that COVID's now that the lockdown's completed. There still needs to be a complete rethink of of what the new reality is. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say people are still just trying to understand what that you know new reality is and 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 how that plays out. Yeah. Touching touching on culture, you, know, you personally and Sumo Salad are, are well known in the industry as being innovators in hospitality. You touched on moving into the ready-made meal market and setting up wellness cafes. How do you think about innovation? I imagine you and the team are never short of ideas. And you know, out of all those ideas, how do you decide which ones to run with? Oh, yeah, look, that's what I love. I love the innovation. I love being super close to the customer and, and being the customer and looking at things that I think are super cool in the marketplace and things that I think are missing and little problems that you think you can solve to make that really nice, clean customer experience. And a lot of the times that there's just little things that you can see that, that just aren't the way they're meant to be. And you can see you can get a lot of insight from different industry and then apply it to, to your industry just to, you know, and start to see where those little gaps are and where you can sort of evolve and advance, and not just in terms of your product, but your branding, the way you talk to your customers, the way you engage your customers, you know, and the narrative that they're expecting. So there's innovation from all different areas that you can look at. And then it's about prioritizing what is most meaningful and what's going to give you the best sort of positive shift in terms of profitability and growth, you know, and then sort of just getting the team to focus in on that and, you know, really doing like the, a proper due diligence and stage process to make sure that when you do go down that path, that you're doing it in a sustainable way that's, that, that doesn't sort of create distractions. And that's one thing I've learned over the years, because when you've got so many ideas going all at once, you just, it, nothing gets executed well and you have so many different demands and being pulled in so many different ways. But now, years and years later, I'm very careful with how I innovate. I focus very much on putting a lot of energy into, into fewer things and trying to make sure that those things get to the point of realisation and, and they stick. Yeah, I guess it is. It's, it's being very close to the customer, looking at these opportunities and then changing the, the way you view innovation to, to really double down on things that are the most meaningful. 
innovation, big ideas and challenging the norm is something you want the whole team to be thinking about and empowered with at Sumo Salad. How do you take your passion for innovation and inspire the team to come up with those those big ideas when you're not around? And you know, is there one that comes to mind that has been fundamental in getting you to where you are today? Oh, there's, there's so many different things that have happened, but I think one of the ones that we're quite proud of is that when we acquired the brand Thrive, we knew that the it was just starting to get into e-commerce, direct-to-consumer meals. And there was, you know, one other company that was doing it and they were, you know, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't quite there. They It hadn't quite taken off. And it was very sort of looking at the future state of how people will engage with, with brands over the internet, especially food brands over the internet. So, and this was in the in the ready meal space. At, at that point in time, we we really sort of put a huge amount of commitment and energy into into looking at that sort of macro trend that we that we wholeheartedly believed in. Looking at the brand, looking at the dynamic, looking at the offering, and just trying to make sure that if we did sort of go in and back that horse, that we could see it through to a, a successful state. And to get the team to do that was very challenging as well because you're in a business that is losing money, that that is still striving to get to a point of critical mass and growth, and you're still trying to get proof of concept and still trying to acquire new customers and keep customers. And there's all these things that you have to do day to day. It's almost like building the ship while you're fly- building the plane while you're flying it, and to keep everyone engaged and and still looking at how you can innovate quickly and and use the data to your advantage and keep going down that path to success it's a it's a day-by-day thing and you have to keep recalibrating with your team and keep the eye on the customer and keep the eye your eye on the data that's telling you what's working and what's not uh, in order to, to to get to that that sort of successful point of innovation and for me it was I, I much preferred running a smaller team that was with really good professionals that really understood the the, the mission and were committed to the, the purpose of the business and just working really focused you know in a really focused fashion to get to that point so so that was my approach with with the team is we had a a much smaller team a much more dedicated team and a lot more focus on where we wanted to get to and almost like a uh, an obsession of of getting to where we wanted to get to off the back of that we've been very successful in that in that business because you know, I imagine not without risk, but at, at what point do you think there was that aha moment where the the team, the wider team, saw the vision and and understood the the play? Well, there's there's all these sort of misconceptions. Like you said, everyone has a different slant on things, a different view. You you don't want everyone you know drinking the Kool Aid and being sort of naive to what the challenges are, but you also want people that can take the challenges and then problem solve and keep evolving. That you don't want them people to 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 get sort of caught up in the negativity and the challenges and not be able to sort of, you know, move forward. So for us, as the team evolved, we had to make sure that everyone had the right attitude, the right mindset, and would, as as we were sort of breaking new barriers and we we're going into unknown territory, we were resetting everyone's expectation to then go, okay, what's next? Where do we have to get to in the next six months? And you have to dream a little bit because you don't know what is ahead of you. You don't know and you've just got to take the best that you can see from that from that vantage point and throw it out six months and then try to aggressively get there. And for us, we were very lucky that we had the team that that, that supported each of these big leaps in, in terms of the evolution of the strategy. And, you know, off the back of that, things that we would have said two years ago, 
were stupid ideas and crazy and now a big part of our current business. So, so yeah, and because the, the team's mindset has evolved and they see these constant little wins and see, and believe that we can achieve things that no other company can. Focus is always, always challenging when there's so many things you could be running at. And we keep hearing about ghost kitchens, delivery by drones and, and workforces being replaced by AI. What's next for Sumo Salad and, and what's your vision for where all this could go? Well, for Sumo, um, Sumo is very much mass market. It's very healthy. It's a very sort of mass market health business. And a lot of the focus for Sumo will be an enabling independent retailers to leverage our now in marketing, branding, product innovation, and ability to keep that customer experience evolving. And so what we've done with Sumo is we've set up uh, an arrangement where we support independent operators uh, to resell our products in a much more scaled way. So Sumo will be very focused on that over the next five years, whereas Thrive is a very different business. Thrive is more of a pure play D2C business, which specialises in science-backed meal plans and Thrive has a very different philosophy to Sumo. It's a a lot more niche and we're doing a lot of stuff with with gym groups. We're doing a lot of stuff with um, dietitians and nutritionists and people that are in that sort of space where healthy food is is fundamental for them. So the the, the businesses have a very different path, still complementary. Sumo's is going to be more wholesale and, and focused on those B2B partnerships Thrive is going to be very, very focused on the consumer, the technology, the science, and evolving the the meal offering to make sure that we can help people optimise their nutritional intake. What a great place to close. Sumo, Salad and Thrive, brands I've frequented often and admired for many years. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for your time, your insights, and for sharing your journey with us today. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. For more episodes and great conversations with industry leaders, head to mobihq.com.